Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And in today's episode, we're going to be looking at gothic horror. But before we get into all that creepy stuff, what is going on? So, Happy New Year 2023! We survived the solstice! Yay! <laughs> And uh, I believe we have some recordings of seminars that the two of you were involved in at Illusion HorrorCon on the weekend of 3rd and 4th of December 2022. Yes, one of the seminars was on special considerations for horror GMing, which was a hell of a lot of fun. And the other one was all about taking inspiration from media. And yeah, that one went <laughs> very well indeed. Managed to get some great reactions out of my, my fellow panellists by describing some of the more grotesque moments from horror media that have inspired me. Why am I not surprised you grossing out other people on a panel? <laughs> what was your panel, man? I was only on the one panel. I was on the one discussing the universe of cult and the uh, the different stories that can spin off uh, using those different aspects or different themes of the universe. Nice. Very good. So we'll put links to all of those in the show notes. There's a new web page that's appeared out there on the web, April. Yeah, so I've set up a substack um, to sort of put out updates about things I'm working on for the Miskatonic repository and other things like Rivers of London and so on. So it's kind of a combination of a kind of blog come newsletter come website. Uh, and you can find it at paulfricker.com. So kind of short and simple. No one have beaten you to that URL then. No. I'm sure it was in high demand, but I managed to get it. And you were at Dragon Meet as well, weren't you, Paul? Yeah, so I attended Dragon Meet this year with Mike Mason and Lynn Hardy and Ben Aronovich for the seminar to launch Rivers of London, the role-playing game. The PDF came out just a few days beforehand. There was some doubt whether we'd actually have any physical copies or not. Lynn had gone and got some, like, print-on-demand copies spiral-bound, which were massive, like, fat tomes. And we had a couple of those to sort of show on the stand. Some members of the company from Poland came over with printed copies, 10 printed copies, which had been had been hand-finished because, you know, they're not running all the, all the machinery for 10 copies. So, But they are essentially, well, they are the real thing. So we had 10 copies, and we were able to give away one to the a random person in the seminar and apparently it was the best attended seminar dragon meat has ever had uh so um that was great so it was be able to, great to be able to give one away and put one in the auction and uh, to be able to talk about that and hard copies will be available in the spring not sure exactly when but you know with printing and shipping and everything uh i can't say exactly when but probably you know march april and if you buy the PDF from Chaosium, then you can get the cost of the PDF reduced off the cost of a physical copy. And did you record the seminar? No, but I think that Dragon Meat recorded it, so I think that will be available via YouTube soon. And now on to our main topic, Gothic Horror. We've mentioned a number of times how Lovecraft's early work was rooted in Gothic literature. What we've never done, though, is explain what that means. 
The word gothic gets thrown around a lot, and not just by us. It's one of those terms that horror fans can immediately relate to, picking out examples of the genre, but how many of us actually can really define what it means? Where did gothic horror come from? What differentiates it from the rest of the genre? How does it relate to other forms of gothic literature? And how does all this fit into Lovecraftian horror and Call of Cthulhu? So let's start off by digging into what is gothic horror? Because to me, when you you suggested this topic, I was like, I've really no <laughs> idea what gothic horror is. I've kind of heard the word and it kind of brings up a couple of images and I still don't really know. So, but you two do, I think, particularly you, Max, you studied it as a, as a part of your degree, I think. Before we get into trying to define what the genre is, where does the name even come from? Because it's a name that we all know, but the more you think about it, the more you dig into it, the more it actually seems to be a pretty weird name. Yeah, I mean, if you go back far enough, the term doesn't relate to lots of angsty teenagers in lots of black leather and eyeliner. <laughs> I suppose the furthest you go back is that you get to the Goths or the uh, the Visigoths uh, that sacked Rome. And the Ostrogoths, yeah. Yeah, and this is partly where you start to get the definition come from. In fact, from a uh, a true Renaissance man or a Renaissance master by the name of, and I'm probably going to butcher the pronunciation here, Giorgio Vasari, a painter, an architect, an engineer, a writer, and a historian. As I say, a true Renaissance man or a Renaissance master. And he wrote a title with an extravagantly long title, Lives of the Most Excellent Painters, Sculptors and Architects, which everyone else just shortens to the lives, in which he attributes various architectural features to the Goths, who he held responsible for destroying the ancient buildings of Rome after they conquered the city, and erecting new ones in this particular style. It became very much, in his mind, a parallel or at least a, me a visual metaphor for the associated with the destruction of advancement and sophistication because they saw that uh, the classical empire or classical architecture as being like the pinnacle of design so you start off with this term being used as a pejorative that mm. very much it's seen as a way to say oh that horrible stuff over there we can label this all as gothic as a way to uh, look down our snotty little noses at it mm. And when we're talking about Gothic in terms of architecture, we're talking about what the Gothic Revival and the what the use of flying buttresses and mm -hmm. pointed arches and pointed windows and stuff like that. Yeah, as, as we'll get to in definition of the literature, architecture features a lot in the mm. literary context, but very much that pejorative term has carried over for people to also look down their noses at gothic literature as well because there's a, a good degree of parallel between how literature evolved into the gothic then kind of almost reverted back on itself to historical fiction and everyone else then again looking down their nose at oh that scandalous salacious uh or riffraff nonsense and they, they just use the same terminology they they called it gothic as a way to mirror that pejorative aspect but as uh scott's pointed out very pointed out <laughs> that uh, gothic architecture is also called pointed architecture hmm. derives from a european style mainly from the late 12th to the 16th century the defining design of which being the pointed arch or the again i'm going to butcher pronunciations all the way through this ogival arch this design this particular shape is very evocative of a church door or a hmm. stained glass window in a church in fact many churches and cathedrals were built in this style but ironically, not as many as in the preceding style of architecture, the Romanesque architectural period, which is where you have semicircular arches. Mm. 
From what I understand, the sort of transformative aspect of Gothic architecture, and I could be horribly wrong on this, but from the little superficial reading I did, was that it allowed for much more in the way of large open spaces inside, just because of the way it, it distributed weight within the structure. So, whereas you had you know, like pokey little rooms that you had before and pokey little arches and so on, you suddenly had the opportunity to build these huge cathedrals that distributed weight through flying buttresses and arches and so on mm-hmm. in such a way that you could have these awe-inspiring chambers, these, these huge echoing chambers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, again, which very much that sensory way to describe these buildings very much carries over into literature because they provide lots of the setting for the stories that characterise at least the very first part of the movement. As I mentioned, it's something that has evolved over time. So it developed from the Romanesque architectural period and then was succeeded by the Renaissance, uh, where you've got the revival and development of classical styles. So there was more of an emphasis on symmetry, proportion, geometry, those kind of very mathematically based designs. But yeah, it was it was very much those that were promoting the Renaissance style of architecture that termed the Gothic architecture pejorative, meant to look mm-hmm. back and say, oh, this deviant offshoot that uh, we didn't want, we've now going back to our roots and going back to strong, tried and tested and proven design. But as far as the use of it as a pejorative in literature goes, again, you'll know far more about this than I do. But my understanding is that one of the earliest uses of it in literature was in the second printing, uh, The Castle of Otranto. Yes. Which had the subtitle, A Gothic Tale. Mm-hmm. And my limited understanding is that Walpole used that term primarily as a way of denoting antiquity because this was supposed to be a, an old story that he had found and was reprinting. And, and later, I mean, he said, oh yeah, okay, I wrote it. But it was the idea that this was something that was dating back to the Crusades. And so <laughs> the term Gothic there just basically meant really old. Pretty much exactly. Also ironic, given how the critical reception of that book changed once he came out and said, oh yeah, I wrote it, this wasn't a, an old manuscript I found and had translated. Mm. Uh, Walpole originally put the book out in 1764 anonymously, and it was only then on subsequent releases that he put the subtitle of A Gothic Romance, and then later admitted, oh yeah, I wrote this. But he admitted it was more supposed to be of a satire or parody of Mm. those such tomes that were found. And that immediately turned critical reception against him. Whereas they previously hailed this as the next best thing since sliced bread. They now turned on him and said, oh, this is ridiculous. This is a farcical piece of literary excrement. And they really turned against it, which seems to be quite a common theme with many of the male Gothic writers at that time. Mm. That's interesting. I I read The Castle of Otranto a couple of weeks back as preparation for this, and I must admit, I, I absolutely loved it. It's, it's a delirious little story, very strange. The whole thing just feels like Shakespeare on acid. I was going to make a Shakespeare comparison, but I realised that's more in The Monk than in um, Otranto. I could see a lot of Shakespeare in the mm. sort of games of identity and the revelations about, oh, I am ready so-and-so and here's my <laughs> real lineage and and all the reversals of fortune and so on. But then you've got all this really fucking weird supernatural stuff laid over on there. Any book that starts off with a giant helmet falling from nowhere and crushing <laughs> the groom at his own wedding is off to a strong start. 
I couldn't remember if it was a giant hand or giant helmet, but yeah, I do remember that being, cause that was one of the texts that we looked at at university. And mm. yeah, I do remember it being a somewhat off the wall, almost Monty <laughs> Python-esque yeah. opening to the whole thing. Oh yeah, I mean, the whole thing is really quite absurd. It's not a creepy story for all the supernatural and weird elements in there. It is, it feels almost more like a farce. So we got the idea then that we had Gothic architecture made by the Goths, and then that style was picked up in the Renaissance and people started building in that style again as a sort of hark back to the past. And then when people started writing and setting things in places with that kind of old architecture, that took on the, the label Gothic as well. So what about the story you just referred to, the Castle of Otranto, mm -hmm. being just set historically? So that would that I mean it was set in those kind of buildings, was it? It wasn't just that it was pretending to be an old document from the sort of medieval period. Yeah, it, a combination of the two. You can hark back saying that because it's supposed to be a translation of an old document, that it would have been contemporaneously set in a time when the castle would have been in its glory. But generally, these tales are set right. in castles, in cathedrals, where they are now ruined. Mm. That it's very much about the incursion of the past into the present, that there is a juxtaposition of real and supernatural. Uh, it doesn't have to be always supernatural, because you get into Radcliffe's later definition of, oh, this, this appears to be supernatural, but it isn't. They're kind of her rationalisation of the supernatural elements in stories. But the typical way that a manifestation of the past occurs in the present is a ghost. Right. And that's always used, again, as juxtaposition. That's always a core running theme throughout a lot of these stories. And particularly with the early Gothic stories of the 1760s through to the 1790s, that was very much almost seemingly a common denominator amongst all of the stories then, or nearly all of the stories. They all tended to use a lot of the same elements. They all were set in these locations. They always had a ghost or some kind of hark back to the distant past usually the medieval period because they were seeing that as a more romantic period i wasn't going to say enlightened because that's more when you get to the renaissance so we can perhaps identify what gothic horror is by sort of saying well there's a menu of things mm -hmm. you can kind of choose from yeah and some of the ones we just talked about are like menu items if you've got enough of those menu items then you can sort of say <laughs> yeah that's kind of gothic mm -hmm. is that i mean is that fair yeah that's pretty on the nose i think you could even <laughs> be almost satirically reductive about the whole thing and say at least in the early days of it gothic literature was you know like the castle of otranto it basically seemed to be remixing those elements it was mm -hmm. all right yeah it's set in a spooky old castle yeah it's about secrets coming to life it's about all these characters behaving in melodramatic ways uh you've got supernatural manifestations running around in secret corridors yeah <laughs> and yeah it really did seem to be people just reinventing that over and over again the parallels thinking of when we're trying to define what elements really make this up, got me thinking a lot about uh, another module which I did on my course and another episode we've talked about, Film Noir. The, mm. Again, it is very much that smorgasbord menu of different elements that you can put in. In terms of Film Noir, it's a very visual thing, but this is very much the same thing on a literary end of the yeah. scale. It's just what elements do you want to throw in that meet this particular feeling or this particular style or atmosphere you're trying to evoke? Mm. Yeah, I think the thing that they've both got in common is they're both fundamentally aesthetics. Hmm, yes. The other thing that 
struck me when I was reading about it is that this came very much out of the Romantic movement, didn't it? Mm -hmm. Historically, that was sort of a reaction against the very rational era of the Enlightenment and this reaction of artists and poets and writers trying to go back to a a realm of imagination. Mm -hmm. Do you think the Gothic is just really an offshoot of the Romantic movement? It definitely seems to be something that's spurned almost like a uh, a reflex action against it, whereas prior to this, you've got a lot of authors which are holding very historical, very detailed, very realistic pieces as being the height of literature, the height of written art. And then almost like someone kicking back deliberately and saying, no, I'm going to do something completely different now. Mm. They're doing something that is completely counter to all the rules. That it starts off with a historical-ish kind of setting so it logs you in with a little bit of familiar ground but then right wildly goes off at a tangent Hmm. so we pin down the cast of otranto as kind of ground zero for gothic literature (laughs) but what would you say are the works then that developed it and fleshed out the genre and gave us what we can now identify as i mean not just gothic horror but gothic literature in general as you say, this is the start because Gothic itself has gone through various peaks and troughs mm-hmm. over the centuries that have followed. And I'd say each different wave or each different period has a very different feel to the ones that preceded it. But the starting point, as you said, definitely Castle of Otranto is the beginning. But other key novels after that, one of my particular favourites, uh, William Beckford's Vathek from 1786. And by the time you hit the 1790s, you've got uh, pretty much the name that becomes synonymous with the early Gothic period, Anne Radcliffe. Uh, Mm. You've got the likes of The Romance of the Forest from 1791, uh, The Mistress of Adolfo from 1794. And very much her her novels began the almost the first offshoot within Gothic as being specifically the female Gothic. And then you've got one of the most infamous of the bunch, Lewis's The Monk from 1796. And boy, yeah, that's a case in point as to why people didn't like the Gothic, or at least you, you could see where the plenty of ammunition its critics got for it. <laughs> why do you say that? Oh, it got a hell of a lot of flack. It went through four different editions as well, kind of reflecting the, uh, the rise in popularity and then the backlash it got as well. Again, originally published anonymously, until the second edition where it became so popular Lewis decided to put his name on the front cover whereas previously he just put his initials in the introduction and this book became more and more popular until the point where because Lewis at this point was only uh, in his early 20s I think he wrote this when he was a teenager oh wow yeah and and the fact that it includes uh, such wonderful wholesome family topics as rape murder incest the triumph of evil over good etc the uh, spiritual corruption it's all in there it's it's great but yeah you can see how um lewis who his father was a member of parliament and he he himself became a member of parliament later his father was very upset about the controversy that was generated around his son's work, and so he castigated his son, and his son had to write a public apology, in a, in a sense. There was definitely a letter that mm. made its way out into the public domain about how he regrets having put this thing in print, that he uh, <laughs> he then had to release a fourth edition, which very much changed key words in the text to make oh. it less provocative and yeah, generally tone it down a lot. Mm. But was it the kind of shock value of it? You know, I don't know if it was salacious or whatever, but it, that that sort of quality of it that, that made it popular at the time and then... Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. 
Okay. It seems a lot like the parallel you have now between where a critic score for a, a film would be. <laughs> we discussed this in um, It's Horror Dangerous, mm. where a critic score for a film will be down in the gutter and the audience score will be through the roof. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. Lewis Peck, who wrote A Life of Matthew G. Lewis, stated, they've been told that the book was horrible, blasphemous and lewd, and they rushed out to put their morality to the test. <laughs> Things ain't changed. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and from what I understand, it was something of an influence on the Marquis de Sade as well, wasn't it? Given the fact it features sex in a graveyard, incest would say a character having sex with someone who they, they later find out is their mother. There's so much rape. There's murder. There's, yeah, it's just alludes they even just many of the contemporaries at the time pretty much described this thing as pornographic mm. and uh completely salacious even uh samuel taylor coleridge wrote at the time in one of his reviews saying that oh there's so many aspects here that i can praise and he did he don't actually give it a fair hand it's like saying on oh, this hand i can praise this 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 and this and then i'm going to lambast it for about 10 times more <laughs> saying that yeah, the scenes of grotesquery and horror abound proved it to be a, a proof of a low and vulgar taste. Hmm. When I think of, of gothic horror, I tend to think of it as being a fairly transgressive thing, but that may be because it's, it is horror and horror is inherently transgressive. Do you think that that largely comes from the monk more than anywhere else? Because those early works... I guess weren't particularly transgressive. There were elements that you could say with the female Gothic that were in inverted commas transgressive. But I'd say that yeah, the monk is definitely the focal point for this, the flashpoint where it really came to the forefront. And does that have supernatural elements in it? The monk certainly does, because it deals with the there's summoning of the devil, there's demonic packs, there are spirits right. that appear and such. So it's very much blatantly supernatural, particularly the further in you get into the book. Yeah. Now, going back to one you mentioned a bit earlier, though, Vathek, mm -hmm. you've talked about that before on the podcast, and it certainly seems to come up over and over again as one of the foundational works of Gothic literature. I must admit, I've never read it, and I know very little about it, but just from the synopsis that I've read, it seems to stand out as being more fantastical than a lot of other Gothic literature. What is it, do you think, that makes it an important work or a foundational work of gothic fiction yeah it, it is quite different because also the setting isn't the typical european crumbling mm. castle either that it's very much it's set in the in the middle east because it's set around the caliph vathek it shares a lot of parallel in some way with the monk but i'd say in a downplayed and more perhaps because the setting has a bit more of a mystique about it and that it's a bit more exotic than the environment that a lot of the readers in Europe would be familiar with. I say for them, they've got castles on, not castles on the doorstep, but it's a motif and a style they'd be familiar with. But setting it out in the Middle East, it's removed a little bit. It breathes mm. that air of exoticism. But it does have a lot of elements that the monk has, in specifically the downfall of the main character and the triumph of evil over good. Because it ends with Vathek going to hell and being pretty much where he used to be a king in the real world. He is now a subservient, silent, unspeaking entity at the bottom of the food chain in hell. It shares that God, rapid decline of the protagonist, which again isn't something you see much in stories that precede it. You've got some that pop up, like Mabeth, for example, is cited mm -hmm. as a prime example of where a lot of Gothic 
authors would get their inspiration for the kind of ultimate fate of their characters. Mm. But I think that era of exoticism and removal from the setting, at least the geographical setting, helps to set it apart from a lot of those other stories. Mm. So yeah, it shares a lot of elements, but the underlying tapestry is very different. Then I guess once we've got those early works of gothic literature that set all the, the tropes, then we perhaps get into the era of gothic literature that more people are familiar with, which is the Victorian era. Yeah, I mean, you've got a small blip that occurs in between. Hmm. You've got the early second-generation Gothic, mainly deriving out of that uh, particular uh, lakeside party in a thunderstorm where the likes of uh, Mary Shelley came up with her Frankenstein, or the uh, modern Prometheus, so 1818, and John William Polidori's The Vampire, or which came out the same meeting, so from 1819. That mm. was a little bit of a revival, a little blip that happened. It's still a significant one because it very much laid the foundation for the mainstream Victorian Gothic that followed. It was about, no, it was shortly before, wasn't it, that we got the classic works of Gothic romance like Jane Eyre and Wuthering Heights. That that was like a generation later, wasn't it? I was about to say Wuthering Heights is the one that I've singled out there from Emily Bronte, because mm. that was 1847. So right. it's a little bit before. You've also got Poe working at the same time, particularly mm. with the likes of The Fall of the House of Usher in 1839. So that's when it starts to have that upward turn and starts to come back a bit more. But it doesn't really flourish until the revival in the late 1880s and 1890s, where you have the... Uh, that I think the titles most people will know, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Picture of Dorian Gray, Dracula, Phantom of the Opera. These are all the big stories at that time, which mm-hmm. also in turn you could say are the foundations of urban gothic rather than being gothic horror. But again, this is where you get lots of subtle variations of that menu mm. to choose from. Yeah, no. You're talking about urban gothic there. This is one of the things that I've really struggled to get my head around when researching this episode, which is how the gothic has come to mean so many different things to so many different people. So I read this book in preparation for this episode called Gothic in Illustrated History by Roger Luckhurst. And it is, as the name implies, a sort of overview of the Gothic genre. But the thing that struck me from that book is he finds elements of the Gothic in absolutely fucking everything. He's got, for example, an entire chapter on folk horror there because he sort of sees the wilderness aspects, which we may come to later, of uh, the Gothic as being very inspirational in folk horror. He's also got a section on cosmic horror as well, which again seems unusual in that context. Mm. And yeah, as I was reading through this book, I was getting more and more confounded because it seemed like you could apply the descriptor gothic to just about everything in the horror genre if you looked at it from the right angle to the extent where it almost came to me nothing as a result because it was so diluted. Yeah, I can see that. Using Paul's menu analogy again, I would say what Urban Gothic did, it took the main list, the main menu items, but where you had at the top, here's the setting bits and pieces like castle, cathedral, secret chambers, etc. Remove those, 
drop them off and reinsert things that dealt with the industrial and post-industrial urban society and all the griminess and grittiness of a flourishing urban setting at the time. And that then became the new menu. But because it didn't have those fundamental things it shared with the original Gothic wave, it became its own thing. So they called it urban Gothic. So that Gothic had been around for quite a while. So as more people had written in that style, more things had been added to the menu, right? So <laughs> it was easy to drop off some of the core ones and then just focus on the other ones. But is it really any of these menu items you can pick from to, you know, as elements into your Gothic work? Do you reach a point where the, the items aren't so important? It's really the atmosphere that you're taking those items to create. It's almost like a something that's a greater than some of the parts is is that atmosphere that those elements are creating and and anything you take off that menu as long as you're creating that gothic atmosphere that's then uh, getting to the core of it yeah i completely agree right yeah because the setting part of it definitely seems to change through the years i mean even between the original gothic and the urban gothic of the late 19th century you have those gothic romances that we touched upon, things like Wuthering Heights and Jane Eyre, where they're perhaps more rural, there's elements of wilderness in there, and it's still the same atmosphere, but a completely different setting. You don't have the ruins and the castles and so on. These are like country houses and moorlands and so on, but it's, it's still the same emotions. This is where you get the elements of the sublime creeping in, where you've got mm. the individual against a very stark, very larger-than-life, larger-than-person background. So there's there's lots of influence in paintings at the time where you have people in these like, mountainous landscapes where the person is so small and the mountain is so huge. I suppose there's elements of that you get evoked in the likes of Lovecraft's Beyond the Mountains of Madness, mm. where you've got, mm. again, the the insignificance of man compared to the surroundings. And that very much uh, is seen. You've got the elements in Frankenstein, particularly with them being out on the ice at the end of the story. In Weathering Heights, the enormity of the moors and the, land, mm. the wilderness mm. surrounding them. So again, this is very much, it's part of that little uh, landscape section of the menu. The physical setting changes, but becomes, a, again, a common theme throughout lot of the stories in this period again poe with the uh, archetypal house of usher itself being out in the wilderness eventually descending into the bog they're all elements that run through these stories but do you think you could then make the argument that fundamentally what defines gothic literature in all its forms is the emotional element of it these heightened emotions this melodrama that goes through it and the way that it's reflected in the surroundings, the way that you've got these crumbling houses, these bleak landscapes, these urban hellscapes as these mirrors of what's going on inside the characters with their emotional intensity. Yeah, that's definitely a key thing that runs through it. I think it's exemplified more in the female Gothic strand than perhaps in the male Gothic. Because there was a quote, I believe it's from Jane Austen's Northanger Abbey, where she stated that, in many respects, the novel's intended reader at the time was the woman who, even as she enjoyed such novels, the historical, factual, very bland and, in my opinion, boring novels, 
felt that she had to lay down her book with affected indifference or momentary shame. These were ways that they've also been described for gothic romance films as well, full in World War II, that they are works that have a more feminine appeal. They permitted the articulation of feminine fear, anger and distrust of the patriarchal order, quoted Diane Waldman in the Cinematic Journal. They were alluding to women's societal and sexual desires and ways for them to be introduced that weren't previously... It wasn't taboo to put them in works at the time, but it was just that no one really did that. And this was a virgin territory in literature at the time. But the women authors that popped up in this period, such as Radcliffe, as mentioned previously, very much took it as a way to uh, express themselves more than had been done in literature up until this point. I mentioned Radcliffe before. She had a way of explaining the horror she was saying that uh, particularly in mysteries of dolfo where things that appear ghosts are proven not to be ghosts later in the story mm-hmm. they focused less on the supernatural aspects of the stories i mean they did occur in there but they weren't the main focus whereas they would have been in something like the monk that uh, male gothic tend to focus more on the supernatural and more on the horrific aspects and transgression of social taboos female gothic focused more on the persecuted heroine in flight from a villainous father in search of an absent mother and again you've got that even going back to castle the tranto with the uh, father trying to uh, basically get hold of his daughter to marry her it was his late son's bride that he wants to marry oh yes yeah of course would have been daughter-in-law to get hold of her yeah Yes, it was still forbidden, but not quite incestuous. Mm -hmm. But where you you were talking about particularly Radcliffe and the fact that there are these rational explanations for the apparently supernatural elements, am I right in thinking that there is always at least a hint of something that might be supernatural, even if it turns out to have a rational explanation? Mm. That's the core part? Yeah, like the moving paintings in um, in Castle of Otranto, the ghosts out on the moor in Wuthering Heights. They're always peppered in there. There's at least some aspect of that because it's that's one of the, the fundamental core aspects of that menu that you need to put in for, to have the work classified as Gothic. But yeah, so the female just tends to rationalise it away or make it something that it appears to be something else entirely, something more mundane later in a story. So what you're saying is that Scooby-Doo is an exemplar of the female <laughs> Gothic. <laughs> Velma and power to her, yeah. Because <laughs> this happened this week when I watched Crimson Peak, Matt, because you were, I'd asked you about it and you'd said that it had been marketed as a supernatural horror, but it wasn't. Mm. So when I came to watch it and there were like ghosts in it, I'm like, wow, what? You know, Matt said this isn't supernatural. <laughs> so, like, what are these ghosts? Is it just that they're in her head and she's imagining them or, or is it some sort of like, construction that she's seeing but then no they are ghosts yeah. <laughs> but then when i talked to you about it you made the point that you've kind of brought up a couple of times here yes they're ghosts but they're a vehicle in the story to sort of communicate things from the past and so on so they're not so much central as ghosts more as a sort of metaphor or story element mm-hmm. but to me the viewer well that was supernatural How is that different from a normal ghost story then? Because I always think of ghosts and ghost stories as being these manifestations, the secrets and the evils of the past coming through and bleeding through into the present. They are secrets that are uncovering themselves. They are old wrongdoings that are begging or demanding to be uncovered. How is that different in a classic ghost story from, say, gothic literature? 
I've got a good comparative example for you here. Which would you think is the more true ghost story? Hamlet or Peter Straub's ghost story? Hmm. One has a ghost that provides an expedition dump that then sparks the rest <laughs> of the story. The other one is about the machinations of a ghost trying to get her revenge and acting through lots of uh, like mortal instruments, tormenting the living, and is pretty much the crux, the actus mundi around which that whole story revolves. It's very much how that ghost is intrinsically linked to the story and how much of an active part they play in it. I'd say Gothic tends more towards the Hamlet end of the scale in that they are a plot device. They are not the central focus. They are not the key big bad. They are not the be-all and end-all in the story that everything is fighting against. And the same could be said with Crimson Peak. Yeah, There is an instance where the ghost provides a part of the plot, but it's not a central antagonist. It's not a vehicle that constantly pops up to move the story forward. The interactions of the mortal characters in that story are what makes it the story. Yeah, you could potentially have done that story without the ghosts yeah. you know, and communicated that in some other mm. fashion, perhaps. It's interesting, because as you mentioned Crimson Peak, Del Toro mentioned that in his making of the film that a lot of the female gothic films that had or gothic romances that had developed since the second world war but like i mentioned previously that's when this called wave came up in film more recently that they had been written by a female writer had contained those female themes but then were taken by a male director and almost seemed to be diluted <laughs> in some way that mm. del toro's work was to try and get it back to being a very female-centric, very female-focused story. And that's reflected in the casting and I think a lot of how that story is presented. Mm. So we touched upon gothic romance there. So how does that differ from gothic horror? What is it that links the two and what makes them separately identifiable things? Going back to that aspect of the female gothic, I think this is very much a strand of female gothic, that it shies away from the more transgressive, more horrific aspects. I tried to think of a, like a film analogy. It's less I spit on your grave and more sedate and not pedestrian, but a bit more mainstream. It doesn't have those really graphic, horrific elements in it and tends to maybe have... Romance is a difficult word to pin down because a lot of people think mm. Mills and Boone. It's definitely not that. No. But it has the more romantic as in a lot more fantastical, imaginative, uh, but fantasy elements of it, rather than it being something about uh, romantic feelings between characters. Right. But a gothic romance would still have that kind of emotional intensity and that mm -hmm. dark element to the whole thing as well. Yeah, that's most certainly. But yeah, it didn't focus so much on the uh, kinds of dangerous sexuality, such as your incest, rape, necrophilia, same-sex relationships, etc., that other more male-end gothic works did earlier. You mentioned that in passing with same-sex relationships. I know, for example, Walpole was gay, wasn't he? <laughs> and there were little hints of that, perhaps, through the cast of a Tranto, even if it was never explicit. Mm -hmm. But was there any explicitly queer content in those early gothic tales or was it always subtext it's always subtext i can't remember anything that's it's always something you could infer from um, reading it's not mm -hmm. something that would be made blatant on the page and i think warpole is the the best example of that mm. so are there any other key elements of gothic literature that we've perhaps skipped over at this stage 
There's one that comes to mind, which is something that comes up very much in film later on, because I think the archetypal gothic horror in film would be the likes of the Hammer horror films from the uh, from the 60s onwards. Mm. And that's that apart from the setting, apart from you've got your castle, you've got your vampire character or, or whatever, or some kind of monster, etc. There's always thunder and lightning. Weather is a big part <laughs> of this as well. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, well, that sort of goes back to the metonymy aspect of it that we were talking about before with the external being a manifestation of the internal. That's the classic Gothic thing, isn't it? That you've got the inner turmoil, the emotional turmoil of the characters, all these heightened emotions, and that is reflected through thunder and lightning and torrential rain. There's one that's probably cropped up more in the likes of Southern Gothic, and I'm blanking on what the word for this was. There was a particular word that was or term that was put aside for these. But in your old house that you've got for the, for the setting of this book, there would always be a room or some a part of the house where you couldn't go. A disappointments room, that's the one hmm. I'm thinking of. That hmm. you've got this room where they would lock their disappointment of a offspring up there so they wouldn't be uh, seen as a figure that could bring disrepute to the family or uh, bring shame on them. But in a lot of the works were tending to be metaphors for an area of particularly a woman's life that she couldn't ever indulge in, that it was something that was always off limits that they shouldn't go into, such as their desires, their repression by their male overlords and in inverted commas. Again, that overbearing male figure in the life, which again is harking back to the likes of the female gothic that I mentioned before. But this was very much a almost mm. a physical manifestation of it that appeared primarily in Southern Gothic. Is that the same thing as in Jane Eyre, where you've got the former wife who's locked up in the attic and that's sort of the, the forbidden space, you've got the mad mm. woman in the attic up there? Very much like that, because yeah. that's in a more English setting. But then you've got the likes of disappointment rooms were more of a well, not a common feature, but they were definitely more widespread of a thing that occurred in the States. And I think that was what was promoted by Southern Gothics. You find those those rooms that were locked up in the upstairs as more a Southern feature than rather than something you find in the North. You've talked about how Gothic horror goes through ebbs and flows, and it keeps coming back in different forms. Mm -hmm. What manifestations have you seen beyond the classic eras of the 18th and the 19th centuries as throughout the 20th century in the modern day? This is where the waters get a bit more murky as to mm. what you can pin down as being gothic and a bit like what yourself and Paul are saying, it's that anything can be seen as gothic if you put it through the right lens. I think that's more so true of anything from the 20th century and beyond than stuff before it. You also have more niche variants appearing, like, as I mentioned, Southern Gothic, where you've mm. got different cultures that start developing their own versions of gothic or what they call gothic literature or gothic media, particularly Southern Gothic, where it combines gothic sensibilities with the, particularly the grotesque yeah. set in a Southern United States setting. Well, and also, I think with Southern Gothic, there's much more of the history of the land, isn't there, coming into that, mm. that it's not just shaped by landscape, but it's shaped by what's happened on that land. It's, it's shaped by the history of the slavery and the Civil War and all the other dark parts of American history mm -hmm. that then bleed through into this, this sort of real melodrama. 
which again is the incursion of the past upon the present, which is a mm. core theme of the original Gothic menu. Yeah. Probably the biggest influence in modern literature, or at least in modern Gothic, I would pin down to Anne Rice. Particularly her mm. Vampire Chronicles are a key example of modern Gothic. Mm. Again, set within a southern US setting, a lot of it being around Louisiana and so on, around New Orleans. Mm. But in gaming as well, you've got the likes of Gothic Punk that's arisen with the original World of Darkness games, particularly Vampire the Masquerade, which again, very heavily inspired by Anne Rice, and then all the other games that span off it. But also in the 20th century, I would have thought that one of the biggest influences would be Shirley Jackson as well. When I think of 20th century Gothic, I immediately go to things like We Have Always Lived in the Castle and The Haunting of Hill House, which are two of the most Gothic books I've ever read. You know, as well as a lot of her short fiction. With a key element of that being a particular building, a very yeah. evocative building in that respect. So, yeah, very, very much Gothic. But it's not just the building itself, but it's the fact that the building is very much a reflection of or a manifestation of the heightened emotions of the people within it, particularly mm. in The Haunting of Hill House, where Hill House is pretty much explicitly haunted by the emotional turmoil of the people who are there at the time. It's, it's not ghosts, it's, it's them. Mm -hmm. So you can get into other offshoots, in, particularly in film, more so than uh, literature. I'm more familiar with the film in 20th century than I am with Gothic literature. But again, there's so many films that you could argue as being fitting within Gothic. There was a list particular I found online where they were spouting out examples. And I kept reading and thinking, no, that's that's a thriller. No, that, that's a horror. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're all over the place. It seems to get very, very diluted and very, very ill-defined and very hard to pin down. Well, and even if you go back to the 19th century stuff, there are stories that people highlight as being gothic, which I, I really don't see. So I took the preparation for this episode as an excuse to finally get around to reading Richard Marsh's The Beetle, which is a book I've been meaning to read for years, which was published in the same year as Dracula and was, at the time, a massive success. It outsold Dracula by a long chalk and has largely fallen out of people's minds. I thought, oh, yeah, this will be a good example of a lost Gothic or late Gothic period book to talk about. And I read it, and I couldn't find anything Gothic about it at all. It feels more Sax Roma than anything else. In fact, it feels kind of like a pop Cthulhu game in a lot of ways, just <laughs> perhaps with a bit more racism. It's not a, a terrible book, though it is disappointing. But... It's helped cement in my mind that a lot of the things that people talk about as being works of Gothic literature just don't really fit those moulds that we've talked about. It brings to mind also that there's a certain amount of, I think it's called like the Mandela effect. Mandela effect. Where you think that something is defined as X, Y and Z and it turns out to be ABC, that it's something very, very different that a lot of people might think if they haven't read Dracula but have seen plenty of films adaptations <laughs> yes. and heard it being talked about that he is this cape swirling suave thing that goes around at night gets burnt up by sunlight and has pointed teeth now the, the whole pointed teeth thing particularly comes from Viney the Vampire so very a very mm. different title and publication later that it's almost these are a lot of the modern instances are just reshaped or retellings and reshaped based on lots of other elements all brought together like a gestalt it's all become many many parts become as one and that's what people think of it as in, in the modern day 
Oh, it's like that we go back to most of the classics. Frankenstein, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. If you go back to the original stories, none of them resemble the film adaptations that we've imprinted upon and have formed our conceptions of what these stories are. Now let's take a look at how does gothic horror relate to Call of Cthulhu? There's two stories that come to mind as being the uh, pinnacle of the gothic's influence on the mythos. Mm-hmm. The case of Charles Dexter Ward and The Outsider. Mm-hmm. They're the two that I would pin down as being the most gothic of all of them. Right. With The Outsider, you've got that whole tower and castle set yeah. in the beginning. That just screams gothic, even though, again, it's set in a very different, very more fantastical setting, the whole underground aspect of it. But just even the fact of being in this old tower is very much like a gothic motif. And the likes of Charles Dexter Ward, there's elements that just riff off Frankenstein there, Mm. this uh, pseudoscience and the bringing of the dead back to life. And also, again, the incursion of the past. You've got Ward Mm. being possessed by a character from the past. Those are the two big ones that immediately come to mind for me. Mm. If you go back to Lovecraft's early fiction, so much of that is rooted in gossip literature anyway. I mean, he was very much writing under the influence of Edgar Allan Poe, but... I think probably a lot of the other Gothic writers as well. And it's not really until, say, The Call of Cthulhu that he starts to shape his own path. You've got digressions like the Dreamland stories, but even those are more Dunsany past issues than anything else. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's until The Call of Cthulhu that he really finds his own voice. But yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, The Outsider in particular, I think, is probably his finest gothic tale but also as i touched upon before there was that section in that roger luckhurst book which bemused me about cosmic horror as gothic literature which i didn't quite accept at first but i guess the common element is as you were touching upon before matt that element of the sublime and the heightened emotions that are exemplified and built up further through exposure to the vastness of nature. Cosmic horror, in some respects, is just that dialed up to 11, that instead Mm. of just being made to feel small or overawed or transported, transformed by say, the bleak moorlands of Yorkshire, that instead you are seeing the universe and having that same experience only more so. Yeah, rather than it being a a setting, again, that probably the confines of science at that point have a bit of an impact here, that the world is all there is the further back in time you go. But whereas you get to the more modern era, yeah, we realise we are one planet and there is a bigger universe out there. So you just pull the camera back and do a bit more of a wider zoom and take in more of the rest of creation as we know it. But in terms of Call of Cthulhu, do you tend to see much in the way of gothic influence in the types of games we play or has it become something quite different? I don't adhere wholly to just using the gothic menu, Mm. but there are certainly elements that I'll pick from it. 
particularly buildings, because they are a physical setting for a game, they can be quite central to certain scenarios. Again, sensationalist elements, a lot of the uh, the deep past, in this case, the much, much deeper past mm. than Gothic would be. They'd kind of maybe hail back to the medieval period. But whereas with the mythos, you're looking at millions of years in the past before the dawn of history. There are elements of it which I bring in, but I don't think I, I'd overtly go solely with the just a gothic menu to choose from. I'd broaden my horizons a bit more, but yeah, it's definitely elements there that I would pull upon. But if we're going back to the idea of the gothic as being an aesthetic and this emotional aspect of it, this whole thing about it being about these heightened emotions, the sublime and the way that's reflected externally, that I'd say is actually quite a difficult thing to capture in a lot of role-playing games. I, I know there are certain RPGs I've played which aim for that. I mean, I played Bluebeer's Bride last year and that very much aims to try to manifest that link between heightened emotional states and the world in which they take place. But I don't think I see a lot of that in more traditional RPGs. I, I, I don't think I've ever seen, for example, a game of Call of Cthulhu that's, that's attempted to do that. No, I can't think off the top of my head. But as you say, it's very difficult to pull off because it intrinsically involves characters acting in a particular way and you mm. can't really predict and you can't enforce how a characters act otherwise you might as well just hand them a, a script for a screenplay and say here act this out rather <laughs> than it being a game mm. uh, no but it's a question of trying to perhaps create situations that bring about those emotional states and the characters mm. and then manifest those through the uh, through the game as I said, in something like Bluebeard's Bride, it absolutely works. But I'm just struggling to imagine how one would do that in a more traditional RPG. If you have any thoughts on that, dear listeners, answer them on a postcard. Hmm. How about you, Paul? Are there any Call of Cthulhu elements or games or scenarios you've come across that you think of as being especially gothic? I'm struggling to think of any, to be honest. I would have thought Gaslight would be the best period for that because obviously a lot of the aesthetic is going to be there, particularly with the the more morbid aspects of Victorian society that would feed right into it. And you could probably create a very superficially gothic game like that. Yeah, I've not really done much Gaslight. I've done a little bit. but I can think of one scenario, actually, that would be the closest thing to being a gothic Cthulhu scenario. Mm. I think we both played it me and you, Paul, Sacraments of Evil, the one set in York with the York Minster Cathedral. I think we did play it. I'm struggling to remember details. Matt not ran it for us. It's the, yeah. the one scenario where I was quite surprised to find a character doing some very not PG-13 things to kids and a uh, an entity which was, uh, well, involved that you don't normally see in a lot of scenarios unless they're written by Scott. Mm. That's the closest I can think of to being a Call of Cthulhu gothic scenario, yeah. Well, let's wrap this up then by perhaps each of us picking an example of the Gothic from whichever period that we found particularly interesting or inspirational. I've read, I mean, a couple that I think fall into the category. I've read Frankenstein and Picture of Dorian Gray, which I think fall into this category. Mm. Of those two, which one? It's kind of a hard choice. I'll probably go with Picture of Dorian Gray. Mm. Yeah, that's a remarkable book. What is it that, for you, makes that stand out as an example of uh, the Gothic? I really don't know. <laughs> I just said it because apparently it's Gothic. 
<laughs> How about you, Matt? I'd go for, again, the same kind of period. I'd go for Poe, particularly The Mask of the Red Death, because that's one of my all-time favourite short stories. Mm. You've got the castle setting, you've got the triumph of evil over good, admittedly even in the form of a uh, disease here, rather than it being like a demonic figure, although the Red Death is personified in the story. And yeah, it's a story that stuck with me, and even Roger Corman's adaptation, even though it very much has a, a lot of liberties taken with the story and incorporates other stories like Hop Frog and so on, that is one of my favourite films. That would be my choice, is going right with the Poe. Poe was certainly my introduction to the Gothic back when I was a kid and I read Tales of Mystery and Imagination. And that, I think, set my expectations for the genre. If I had to pick something that I'd encountered recently that I thought was a great example of Gothic, not literature, film in this case, is an Italian film from 1960, which I actually reviewed as part of my October Horror Movie Challenge, a film called Mill of the Stone Women, which is a really odd little film that, like a lot of the Italian films of that period, took perhaps inspiration from the success of Hammer in the late 50s, and then transformed it into something more dreamlike and intense. And this is, I mean, it's like a combination of about a half dozen gothic stories rammed together. I mean, there's a, a lot of House of Wax influence in there, but it's got hallucinations and strange family curses and diseases and this sinister old mill with lots of secret passages and people running around spying on each other and mad scientists and, oh God, it's just glorious. That does seem a real, uh, try to get every tick list on the menu you possibly can in there. <laughs> But somehow it makes it work. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to the good friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media presences. We have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash good friends of Jackson Elias. Thank you for listening. Well, it is that time once again when we would like to say thank you to people. Thank you, first of all, to you for listening to this podcast. Thank you to anyone who has ever backed us at any stage. And we have a number of new people to thank by name. Yep, thanks very much to Mark Harris. And thank you very much to Peter Berry. And thank you very much to Brockett Carroll. And thanks to Thomas. And also thank you very much to Aaron Fern. Ah, and someone I have spoken to on our Discord server, thank you very much to Noops. And thanks to Tensoon's Shadow. And thank you very much to Stephen Dozman. And thank you to Ronald Lewis. And thanks to Stephen Gingle. Thank you very much to Void Realm Minis. And thank you to Lars Nilsson. And thanks to Victor Wyatt. Thank you very much to Moth Sebados. And thank you finally to Matthew Tansick. Okay, well, uh, if you've enjoyed this episode, then why not tell your friends? Go on to social media or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. That would be very much appreciated. Alternatively, you could dress up in a white sheet, find your local ruined church or uh, cathedral and just whisper the name of good friends to anyone who passes <laughs> by and see what they do. <laughs> well, you've been listening to the good friends of Jackson Elias. Until next time, it's a goodbye from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Mm -hmm.
BlasphemousTomes.com. When I came to watch Crimson Peak last week, I said, I don't really get what gothic is, Lucy. And she said, it's uh, pointy buildings and ripping bodices. And <laughs> that's enough for me. That's a good enough depiction as I'll get. <laughs> so I could have saved you an hour, but, you know, what can you do? Just run them together and end up with pointy bodices. You'll be fine.